when I started looking at, okay, well, what does it take to get this ready to go to the moon? How do you get this stuff and get it to mm -hmm. TRL level six, which is mm -hmm. relevant environment testing before you send it to space? There weren't a lot of test facilities available mm -hmm. uh, that, that people could go and test their stuff. Uh, there's some sandboxes here and there with lunar regolith simulants, but, but not in vacuum, and you couldn't do the temperature simulations, and you can't do the temperature uh, day-night cycles. Uh, and, or they're really small, and so you could only test like a small piece of it. Or NASA has some really giant ones, but you know, mm -hmm. obviously it's like a million dollars a test. So right. that's certainly not affordable for startup companies or for universities. And so what I thought there was going to be a need for was a test capability for CLIPS-sized systems, right? The CLIPS is in the commercial lunar payload services systems. Commercial companies can send cargo to the lunar surface. And so a lot of companies are, are developing these payloads, but where can you test them? And so the idea of the planetary surface technology development test lab is that we can do a bunch of that testing. And so we can develop the payloads. We have an 1100 square foot lab uh, where we can go from initial prototyping, 3D printing, just quick iterations to a sandbox that we have in the lab uh, that just filled with lunar regolith simulant, where we can do, it's a 14 foot by, by six foot box, uh, where we can drive around and, and get some more experience in actually driving this thing around, look at traction. In the future, we can do some gravity offloading so we can simulate one-sixth gravity by lifting up five-sixths of the weight and so it only has one sixth of the weight left on the wheels basically so you can look at the traction and then the next step right once you sort of got your design sort of oh yeah we think this is pretty good uh, now you can start doing your space quality testing and so now you can start simulating uh, the vacuum uh, the temperatures uh, and of course the regulate simulant under vacuum conditions we're back with another episode of the cold star project i am jason canigan your host and i'm here with dr paul van Suzante. He is uh, an assistant professor in the mechanical engineering and mechanics department at Michigan Technological University. And you also have a connection with the Colorado School of Mines, which uh, I was very pleased to see when I first came across that. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. It's, uh, it's fun. I always call myself a graduate of the Space Resources Program mm -hmm. before it existed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, your PhD is in engineering systems from the Colorado School of Mines. So you spent, you spent a fair amount of time there, some years. Um, you've been involved in, uh, I'm reading this off this other screen here, lunar and Mars construction and in-situ resource utilization for 20 years. So you've been uh, investigator or co-investigator of a number of studies of like, how are we actually going to do this stuff? And when I first ran into you, uh, online, you were getting into building test beds and getting stuff together, and then all that has gone out the window for the short term here, you know, which kind of makes things a little crazy. But um, let, let's begin with this. Quite a few scientists are investigating the properties of the lunar regolith and, you know, what can we do about ISRU and, and building stuff when we get there. What properties and results have you been focusing on? Well, one of the important parts when you deal with lunar regolith uh, is that it behaves very differently than, than dirt on, on, mm -hmm. on this planet here, right? And so when you're trying to design machines that are going to have to operate on other planetary surfaces, whether that's the moon or Mars or, you know, asteroids, whatever, you can't just take, pick up sand here and say, hey, you know, this is going to behave the same way. And so we have to really take into account you know, how it behaves differently and what the critical pieces of that are. And so for the moon, one of the critical aspects of that are the particle sizes, because it's very fine material, uh, and then particle shapes, uh, because particle shapes determine how well things you know, interlock, for instance. And so uh, you can basically make a vertical wall out of lunar, lunar dust, uh, you know, it, in its position as it is now. Once you dig it up, you loosen it up, and then that doesn't happen. But uh, to me, that's one of the critical pieces because one of the things that, that I work on is designing robots to uh, work in that material, right? And so um, moving it, digging it up, and driving on it and, and all sorts of, sort of thing is, is greatly determined by the particle shapes and sizes. Uh, and then, you know, a secondary effect of that, of course, is, is how does it affect the machine? So how does it, how abrasive is it? Uh, how, how much scratches does it have? Uh, one of the things 
few people know about is that during the Apollo uh, extravehicular activities, so when the Apollo astronauts are in the spacesuit out on the surface, uh, after three of those excursions outside of their vehicle, uh, the seals had degraded by about 80%. Hmm. And what that means is that, that they may have been able to do one more excursion outside of their vehicle before the seals would essentially fail and they could not create uh, a pressurized envelope in their spacesuit anymore. Right? And so that's four times right. in, in, in four days, basically. And so, you know, if you talk about, oh, we're going to mine the moon and we're going to have to work in this stuff for years on end without maintenance, uh, that, that's a little bit of a discrepancy there. That, that's, that's a challenge that we have to figure out. Right? That, that's the kind of stuff we're interested in. Right. Yeah. And this is fascinating to me. It goes back to even uh, my World War II studies where the, the German um, tank builders built these beautiful, expensive, highly tuned war machines. And then uh, after knocking France out, sent them east into Russia and the Soviet Union was full of dirt roads and all that that dust defeated these panzers. It, it just clogged up the transmissions and they had to it knocked the tanks out. They couldn't fight. So, you know, this is not just uh, a terrible thing on the moon. It's, it's bad enough on earth too. And then you, you add it. So something that I've heard you talk about uh, today that I haven't heard before from other folks that I've encountered in this area is, is the discussion of the shape of these things, um, you know, these particulate and that on the moon. Could you go into that a little bit and describe for our audience who probably hasn't really heard of or thought about this stuff at all, what that is like? All right. So uh, lunar, lunar regolith, which is basically means the broken up top layer of the, of the surface of the moon, uh, is what, what the difference made, the main difference is how it was formed, right? So mm. here on Earth, we have lots of processes that, that blow the dirt around and water that, that rolls the stuff around. I imagine uh, you're on the beach and the wave action, right? So it keeps moving the particles back and forth. And so all the particles here on Earth by wind or uh, water typically get rounded over time. Mm. And that does not happen on the moon. Um, there is no wind, there's no water. And so one of the things that, that happens on the moon that doesn't happen so much here on earth is the meteorite impacts. Right? Mm -hmm. So there's constant bombardment for billions of years of, of small grains and even molecules that, that just keep bombarding the surface. And so the, the lunar surface gets broken up into very small pieces over time. And you can imagine that it gets broken and then it doesn't roll around. So that you get mm -hmm. sharp edges because of that. But not only that, because of those micrometeorite impacts, you also uh, get local melts happening. Mm -hmm. So because mm -hmm. of the impact, because it's really high velocities, like 20 kilometers per second or something like that. They impact lunar soil, and then locally you get a small impact crater, and you get some melt material that then mm -hmm. splashes onto other things. Right. And so I don't know if you've ever been in Hawaii and walked on the lava fields, but that's extremely sharp basalt mm -hmm. glass almost, right? And so it's kind of like that except really small. Right. And so it's like glass shards in a, in a way. Right. I, I had some fun on Wikipedia checking that stuff out. It's little almost turd-sized glass little things. They're, they're brown and, and sharp, like you say. Uh, I was going to include that in an Ask Professor Astronaut episode at some point, I think, because they, they can be made funny quite quickly. But uh, there's nothing funny about them when you're trying to you know, work around them or with them on the moon there. So tell us a little bit about projects that you've worked so far uh, on, you know, You've gotten funding, you've had to go get NASA support and that um, create some things. Yeah, so um, so, so basically how this, this all got started is that, that I was a design engineer, right? And so mm. I, we did a lot of paper projects and we started designing things and everything looks great on paper and on the computer, you know? <laughs> but then, yeah. then I was thinking like, oh yeah, great, this telescope. We did some designs for telescopes on the moon and it's like, okay, great, now how are you going to build this thing? And so how do you put it in place? What kind of equipment do you actually need to build something like that? How do you make a road? And you, you can't just go to a Caterpillar dealer and then, you know, get one and, and then it works, right? So yeah, the question is, how, how do you actually design a machine that can do these kinds of cool things that will bring us to the next step, which is, you know, making constructions on the moon and then come up with these things like telescopes or lunar bases or mining. But first you got to have that equipment. And so what does that look like? And so I started 
making simple prototypes, like senior design project type things for maybe two, $3,000. And it's like, okay, let's just build a backhoe and see how that works. So let's build a bucket excavator and see how that works. And so from that, we built up quite a bit of experience in, you know, working with these kinds of things, figuring out what might work, what might not work, what's a promising thing from a mass and energy use standpoint, and then further develop it to the point where you might actually start being able to use it in a vacuum. Mm. And so from a project standpoint, right, so there's always, there was always a funding question, right? So the question is who will pay for uh, the development of this technology? And so NASA has some interesting programs that specifically focus on technology development. And mm -hmm. so the goal of those programs is to get it from the idea to, in the end, TRL level six, technology readiness level, mm -hmm. where you have tested that equipment in a relevant environment. And so that would mean, in this case, a vacuum with the lunar simulant and, and preferably to the temperatures that you will encounter on, on the lunar surface. And so those programs there's a variety of different programs that are like things like small business innovative research grants. Um, there are uh, broad agency announcements. Uh, there are things like early stage innovation grants. And then there are other programs that are specifically focused on universities. And so each of those programs focuses on specific portions of that TRL spectrum. Um, SBIRs are typically, you know, low TRLs, early stage innovations, even earlier, maybe one to four. Uh, and then other programs focus more on the later side to get it to TRL level six. And so I've participated in several of those kinds of programs. Uh, I've worked with partners like Honeybee Robotics, uh, several NASA centers and some other small companies uh, to uh, get grants and then to develop different technologies. Uh, I've worked on building landing pads like how do you pick mm -hmm. up rocks? Can you use rocks to build a landing pad? Uh, simulations of uh, of that, as well as you know, testing it out and testing what kind of connections you can create. Uh, we've worked. Uh, we have a grant right now for what's called early stage innovation to mine water from gypsum on Mars. Um, then we have another grant together with Honeybee Robotics uh, that's looking at buried glaciers on Mars and how can you uh, access those buried glaciers and then melt the ice directly and then pump that up. Uh, and then uh, I'm involved with the uh, class, which is mm -hmm. a NASA virtual institute, um, uh, Center for Lunar and Asteroid Surface Science. And the idea there is that there's a variety of different approaches uh, of scientists working together to, in this case, also study you know, variety of different aspects. And my focus is then the, the local use of materials. And so for landing pads, but also for extracting water. And my focus is not so much the chemistry side, but mostly the, the robotics side. And, mm -hmm. and, and how do you actually design a machine that would then, let's say, pick up a rock and sort them out to different sizes and put them in place? Or how do you actually pick up uh, the lunar dust to extract the oxygen mm -hmm. from it? Or, you know, if there is ice, how who actually mine that ice with, with a machine. Right. And this stuff terrestrially sounds fairly straightforward, but you've got to build something that can handle the vibration of launch and getting there, and then maybe has to unfold itself or be put together. Uh, you, you have to have a landing place for it. If you bring something down as an initial lander, and then another thing comes down to land additional parts, that's going to blow dust everywhere. And we've already talked about that fast degradation of seals so there are serious problems here of even touching this stuff and trying to work yeah. with it makes your machinery less functional so i, I am fascinated with this and and uh, how it's you know going to get figured out because it's just not that simple so you founded something called the mining innovation enterprise or m-i-n-e um what is it and what does it do so I'm, I'm an assistant professor here at Michigan Tech. Um, and so at Michigan Tech, we have a program which is called the Enterprise Program. And most people are familiar with capstone design, senior design. And enterprise is a little bit different in the sense that it allows you, or I should say it allows students to be involved for projects for multiple years. And so the mining innovation enterprise that I founded five years ago uh, had as a goal to come up with uh, innovative ways to do mining. 
and it's not limited to space mining. That's that's one aspect of it. So we also have a team looking at underwater mining, uh, and we we have collaborated with some mining companies about design of of above ground and underground mines as well. Um, but the idea is that the students can get involved basically from their sophomore year basically until they're seniors so for three years okay. if they want to uh, and they can also just do multi-year projects so instead of doing a project only two semesters you could work on the same project for three years if you, if you wanted to um, and so the mining innovation enterprise is currently has about 30 students that are involved uh, with a variety of different projects like I said, one is underwater mining. Uh, one is the Lunabotics Mining Competition, which is a NASA competition for college students, uh, kind of a college version of FIRST Robotics, if you will. But in this case, to build uh, a robot that can autonomously uh, traverse over an obstacle zone, which has uh, lunar simulants, craters, and rocks, and then go to an excavation zone, dig down about a foot of lunar regolith simulants, so a more dusty kind, and then find the rocks. The rocks underneath that 30 centimeters are uh, intended to simulate the ice chunks. Uh, and then so we have to collect those ice chunks and then again autonomously traverse back over the obstacle zone back to the lander, right? We're simulating a lunar mission and then dump those ice rocks into the processing unit in this case. Hmm. Right. And so that's that's one of the projects we do. And then the other students are helping out with the, the, the research that's going on. So a lot of the graduate students do a lot of the research, but then the undergraduates get the experience as well to help out uh, with these research projects. Uh, for instance, the gypsum uh, processing unit or uh, designing an excavator that then goes in in, in my simulant sandbox to then test how uh, it behaves uh, with the Lunabotics rover or with, with the trencher or some other kind of hardware that we're building. So. Okay. I, 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 yeah, this is, this is really interesting. Do you find, I've talked with other professors at, at other universities and in the satellite world, um, it's very good to partner up experienced students with new students so that there's that knowledge transfer. Does this happen the same way in the robotics field or is it a little different? No, that's similar. So one of the challenges with, with senior design, like when I used to run a Lunabotics team as a senior design project, and so the students do that project for two semesters and then they graduate, right? They're gone. Mm -hmm. and so the lessons learned from, from that team disappear with the students, mm -hmm. basically. Right. Yeah. Well, I remember them, but you know, like <laughs> right. the students are like, yeah, my mom told me, you know, this, right. so, so I'm not going to listen to you. Right. So <laughs> the, the, the experience of doing this and, and learning from, you know, what happens is, is invaluable and reading it out of book or, or me telling them is just not the same kind of learning experience uh, than being involved for, for multiple years and transferring that knowledge by experience in a way. And so the enterprise program is fairly unique. Uh, in the country actually and so it does allow that multi-year uh, learning and so a lot of our senior students uh, sort of get more of a management of, of uh, experience of helping the uh, younger students to, to do the technical work and then uh, learn those lessons along the way before they then have to perform it themselves and so it's a it's a it's a quick maturation and, mm -hmm. and, and sort of uh, institutional memory of, of these projects that that really uh, helps that that multi-year cycle uh, really helps to to avoid that Oh, all the experience just left, and now we right. got to start from scratch. Right. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and that, that it's uh, like a deliberate part of the thing that you're you're organizing because that's important out in the commercial world as well. Um, we see that institutional knowledge disappearing very quickly, and yeah, once they're gone, it's not like you're going to be able to get them back and sit them in front of a video camera to do an interview or something like that, and they're sure not going to write you. So. <laughs> It is, it is really important. So is that um, a, a shirt for the MINE program? Yes, yes it I is. See it. I just noticed <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah, very cool. All right. Uh, now, I'm just thinking about the components for um, the, the robotic experiments that you're doing. In, with small sats, you can buy stuff off the shelf. It's still not you know, that great, and it needs to be tested in that. Do you find you have to make your own stuff to handle these tolerances and, and this environment? Um, Yes and no. Um, the thing is that nobody's ever built a real excavator. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's not entirely true. There was a scoop on a surveyor and there was one on Mars. 
but it's those are scientific scoops. They're not they're not like industrial mm -hmm. production okay. type machines. Right. And so so really nobody's ever designed and built a lunar excavator um, hmm. to function under these conditions. And so we can't just go buy parts. Uh, CubeSats, you know, even though they've become a lot more prolific. Uh, yeah, you can buy stuff off the shelf, but it might not quite be what, you, what mm. you want. But there's something for a lot of budgets there, right? And so budget, right. of course, plays a big role here. And so what we try to do is leverage some of that experience and knowledge from uh, the CubeSat world uh, where mm. we can, right? Okay. So from an electronics perspective, for instance, there's, there's a lot of similar, similar components. Uh, from a control standpoint, uh, but on the other hand, things like motors and actuators, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they, they've been, of course, made and used for, uh, let's say, Mars rovers and things like that, but you can't just buy those off the shelf. Those are custom-made devices that are, that are not easy to do, and so what I like to do is often I like to partner uh, mm -hmm. with some companies that have some experience in those uh, places, and of course, you know, they like to hire students and they, they need more employees and so it's a good experience for the students right. uh, and it's a good experience for, for the companies as well to to get at students that then are already experienced in, in working a with them but also with some of their hardware right right we do the same thing with data science students at our local university mm -hmm. that's a master's degree student uh, session to come on over and work on something cool and they love it and yeah this is Jason Gannigan from Cold Star Tech and I'm excited to share with you a new offer from Cold Star that we are bringing out to help both space founders and venture capitalists who fund space companies. And it's on two levels. The lower level is a VC who is looking at possibly funding a space company, but they just don't get it, right? And a lot of tech founders want to come out and create some sort of technical capability, but they do not understand business. And so you'll look and you'll go, where's the customer here? Where's the business model? And they'll go, huh? But I want to make rockets or something, right? And, and it's really cool. Well, that, as we know from the dot-com era, is not a viable business model. And so you bring us in. We've got great technical expertise on the space side. Folks who have done this sort of assessment before, like our technical engineering advisor, Dr. Rick Fleeter, myself in the process engineering field, plenty of other people with brains to look at this problem so that you don't have to blow your brains out trying to figure out how to make this work. And on the company side, it's a benefit for them because we will show them the roadmap to how you're going to get funded, how, how you will want to fund them, what changes to make to get VCs excited about putting money in. And so that's good for you. Right? The second level is at a, a deeper and higher level at the same time. It is for venture capitalists who have uh, given a seed round to a company a space company and that has gone on for a little while six months a year something like that and it is time as uh, COVID has made it to double down or get out those are pretty much the choices right it's time to invest further in a thing we already know which seems to be the direction VCs are going in right now uh, they don't seem to want to look at new things uh, or or stop just kill the project and so the good news is in that situation, there's a lot more going on. There's more meat for Cold Star experts to get in and, and analyze, right? You're going to have processes in place, whether they know it or not. We'll be able to flowchart those and, and maybe accurately document them for the first time so we can get some kind of value chain going in the organization. We'll be able to test whether the leadership is the right group of people or whether you're missing something, the strategic direction, the business model, all this stuff. So. If this sounds interesting to you, reach out to us. You can email me at jason at coldstartech.com or just connect with me and message me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best way to do it. And uh, I am excited to talk to you. The, the kind of transformation that we're able to offer here is beyond anything you'll see out there. And as a VC, this will save you so much time and energy, right? Like if you're a VC and you've got 100 companies to look at, you've got three days a year <laughs> to, to look at each one maybe, right? That's not really good enough, is it? Wouldn't it be better to have uh, experienced, expert space, people who understand space, right? Look at this investment and tell you, here's a grade, right? Here are several grade areas. Is this thing ready to pour gasoline on the fire? Or is it just going to go up in smoke? This is Jason Kanig from Cold Star Tech. Let's get back to the interview. What are you going to do or what are you doing to mitigate the risk here, I guess, of uh, like this is a learning experience, right? You're going you're gonna to over-design the heck out of this robotic 
scoop or earth mover or something, right? It goes to the moon and it functions in some manner. And, we only, you know, we can only guess, as you've said, right? It'll either perform really well and be overbuilt or it'll be uh, under the tolerances of what it actually needs and it'll break. Then what? Right? You can't really say, well, okay, send the next one over, right? Uh, so what do you do? Well, that's a great question. Um, so one of the challenges when we deal with, with uh, call it dirt, uh, the regolith, mm -hmm. is that it's a natural material. Mm -hmm. And that means it's going to vary from place to place. Uh, and, and so even if you simulate something here on Earth mm -hmm. with a simulant and all that sort of stuff, what you are going to find locally on the moon or on Mars is not going to be exactly the same. And so you're, you're, you need a factor of safety to deal with the local variation that you're going to see. Uh, and, and so that means that on Earth, when you deal with safety factors, so you just plop some more mass in it, right? You just make a bigger excavator, you put, oh, weld some steel on here, right? So make it stronger. That, that's not a traditional approach in the aerospace world. Hmm. Uh, the typical idea is there to make it every gram counts. And that's a challenge when you deal with these kinds of industrial type machines. And so I think one of the, the big challenges that we have is we really need sort of a paradigm shift in, in the design of these kinds of aerospace uh, systems, because this is not a science machine. This is an mm -hmm. industrial production machine that needs to just do its thing. And it needs to do this repeatedly for a long period of time. And so it does need to be very robust and it does need to, of course, be cleverly done so that we have redundancy and, and, and factor safety where we need it. And in other places where we don't need it, we don't add extra mass. Uh, and I don't think that we currently have the answer to all of these questions. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is part of what my research is about, is to figure out uh, where do we need those extra factors of safety and, and where can we just use the sort of more traditional aerospace approach, if you will. Hmm. And, and where does that break down, right? So that's why we need to test this and not just for, let's say, three days. Oh, this was a great test. Let's test it for six months and, and really see, you know, where does it break down? What kind mm -hmm. of where do we see? Uh, are the materials at all suitable or do we have to invent a completely new um, material that, that may have to work? When people are looking at bulk metallic glass mm -hmm. uh, that can function under really cold conditions, for instance. Uh, so th there, there are different options being explored in that sense. But at the same time, if you look at uh, the plans for SpaceX and Blue Origin and the SLS, just large rockets with large mass volumes. Uh, so maybe an extra couple kilograms here and there is not that bad of a thing. Maybe, maybe that's okay. Huh. It, it's just really interesting to think this through and think the problem through and, and consider like the problem of digging that we're so used to a child knows what this is, right? It sounds our, easy, terrestrially, right? yeah. But you've got a much lower gravity, a totally different material, which could be different from one location to another on the moon where you're going. And so even something as simple as scooping um, you, you have to test this for a long time. And so you need access to a low gravity simulator with the right kind of material in it and uh, temperatures as you brought up. Um, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit intimidating actually to think about it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you can't just go down to the corner store or the radio shack and get this stuff. So, so you founded something called the Planetary Surface Technology Development Lab. Um, what is that and what does it do? Well, this is kind of the, uh, the, the next step, if you will. And so uh, I've been working for, for a long time and, and on sort of designing these machines and, and doing testing and sort of earth, uh, you know, atmospheric conditions. And so when I was started looking at, okay, well, what does it take to get this ready to go to the moon? How do you get this stuff and get it to mm -hmm. TRL level six, which is mm -hmm. relevant environment testing before you send it to space? Um, there weren't a lot of, test facilities available mm -hmm. uh, that, that people could go and test their stuff. Uh, there's some sandboxes here and there with lunar regulate simulant, but, but not in vacuum and you couldn't do the temperature simulations and you can't do the temperature uh, day night cycles uh, and, or they're really small. And so you could only test like a small piece of it or NASA has some really giant ones, but you know, mm -hmm. obviously it's like a million dollars a test. So right. that's certainly not affordable for startup companies or for universities. And so, uh, what I thought there was going to be a need for was a 
test capability for sort of, uh, let's call them CLIPS-sized systems, right? The CLIPS is in the commercial lunar payload services systems um, that, uh, you know, commercial companies can send cargo to the lunar surface. And so a lot of companies are, are developing these payloads, but where can you test them? And so the idea of the planetary uh, surface technology development uh, test uh, our lab is that we can do a bunch of that testing and so mm -hmm. we can develop the payloads so we have an 1100 square foot lab uh, where we can uh, go from for initial prototyping 3d printing just quick mm -hmm. iterations to uh, a sandbox that we have in the lab uh, that just filled with lunar regolith simulant where we can do it's a 14 foot by by six foot box uh, where we can drive around and, and get some more experience and actually uh, driving this thing around look at traction we can uh, in the future we can do some gravity offloading so we can uh, simulate one-sixth gravity by lifting up five-sixths of the weight and so it only has one sixth hmm. of the weight left on the wheels basically so you can look at the traction um and then the next step right once you sort of got your design sort of oh yeah we think this is pretty good uh now you can start doing your space quality testing and so now you can start simulating uh, the vacuum uh, the temperatures uh, and of course the regular simulant under vacuum conditions and and one of the funny things is that the um the presence of, of atmosphere actually makes the dirt, the soil behave very differently, mm -hmm. um, particularly right. since it's really fine. Uh, the air particles actually get trapped in the dust particles. Mm -hmm. And what's, what's interesting is that at the Lunabotics competition, um, when, that, when you try to refill a hole, it almost behaves like a fluid because there's so mm -hmm. much air trapped in the particles that, it, that literally it sloshes mm -hmm. until you can get the air moved out of between the particles and, and that sort of thing so uh, when there's an atmosphere present the simulant behaves quite differently than under vacuum conditions where that wouldn't happen and so it's a very important that you uh, do, do the next step testing mm -hmm. under real lunar conditions as best as we can uh, simulate them here and so my lab uh, has now uh, under order under construction uh, was supposed to be delivered here in, in a week or two, but uh, with the whole virus thing, that's that's been a, a little delayed. Uh, a dusty thermal vacuum chamber that actually can simulate uh, payloads up to, uh, let's see, I think it's 50 inches uh, wide by 70 inches long and 50 inches tall. Uh, it's it's a rectangular mm -hmm. uh, vacuum chamber. And so we'll, we'll have lunar dust in there. We can do the vacuum, we can do the uh, liquid nitrogen temperature, so minus 196 to plus 200 Celsius on the other end. So we can simulate the day-night cycles. Uh, we have the vacuum, uh, only 10 to the negative 5 tor, uh, not as good as the moon, but uh, you know, when you have the dust in the vacuum chamber, that's, that's unfortunately not really achievable to go down to 10 to the negative 12 tor. Um, so, but that gives us the, the, the capability to go all the way from initial prototype testing, rapid prototyping, to testing under atmospheric conditions on the lunar surface, uh, mimic lunar surface in the regolith, to all the way to uh, lunar conditions. And so we can test the whole gamut, the spectrum from TRL 1 to 6, all in this, uh, uh, this lab that, that I'm this setting lab. up. Yeah. Do you, do you intend that to uh, help out to be a revenue generator? Well, as a university, we're we're nonprofit uh, basically, so we're we're not <laughs> generating revenue uh, as such. Uh, but uh, of course, we have to pay people and, and all mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. And I, I tend to make sure that we can graduate our students. Uh, but the, the the goal here, of course, is to train a lot of students in in that whole process, and they can then go work elsewhere and, and mm -hmm. uh, you know hopefully bring some of that work back for us to do testing. Of course. Okay. So Good, good. So create the capability. It is, it is just so fascinating to think about something that you've known your entire life and then discover that there's this place where it behaves entirely differently and you have to filter it in order to be able to get it close to something that we're used to. So very, very interesting. Um, let's look at a, a project. It's called uh, the NASA ESI project that you're the co-principal investigator on. Um, what's being done there and what are you learning? 
Well, so the ESI project is an early stage innovation project. And the goal for this particular project is to extract water from uh, what they call hard rock uh, gypsum in this case uh, on Mars. And um, the, the challenge was to, to do the hard rock piece of it. Um, because you know, if you go to New Mexico, the, the, the great white sand dunes there, white sands, uh, that's gypsum sand and you could just scoop it up and put it in a reactor, heat it up and get the water out there. But on, on Mars, uh, you might land in a place where you might not have access to already granular materials. Uh, unlike the moon where everywhere you have that broken up material, on Mars, you don't have that everywhere. But so how would you excavate uh, and extract water from a rock, basically. And you need dynamite or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, it would it would work, but you know, it's somehow I'm not sure NASA would appreciate <laughs> filling transporting their, that on your rocket. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's already a big bomb in a way, but yeah. still, this transporting dynamite might not be the most effective use right. of base and mass. So you need to drill or scrape or something. Yeah. So that would be the initial yeah. thought. Uh, but the idea is again, because we have to do this for multiple years and you have a lot of wear on your system, how would you, how could you do that? How can you excavate a rock without having any wear and tear? Mm -hmm. And so we came up with an idea to use a water jet. Hmm. Okay. And basically gypsum is very soft rock as far as rocks goes. Um, it, it's on the lowest end of the most hardness scale. You can essentially scrape it with your nail. Um, it's about 30 megapascals of, of compressive strength. Uh, but that means it's within reach of, of a water jet, like a regular pressure washer I, I clean my driveway with, can actually break up gypsum. And so the nice thing about that is that the water impact is actually what breaks the rock. And what, what I thought was interesting is that, so we're, we're trying to extract water and it is water that does the breaking. Right. So I don't, I don't care that water breaks in water droplets, right? That, that doesn't make it, it's not a problem. So we're using water to make more water in a way. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the part that actually breaks the rock, it doesn't wear, right? So we right. have a pressure jet that shoots out the water. It breaks the, the gypsum in small particles. So we create a slurry and that slurry, the water and the particles can, we can suck up, we can, separate the particles from the water and then the, the the wet particles the sort of muddy material goes into an oven if you will mm -hmm. and then we heat that up first we evaporate the liquid water and then we uh, go heat it up more and more until it's uh, hot enough to for the gypsum to actually release its bound water in, in the mm -hmm. crystalline structure and that's only about 210 degrees celsius so it's not mm -hmm. that hot actually but okay. at that temperature, you get 100% of the water out of that rock. Hmm. And gypsum, like I said, is 20% water by weight. So if you have one kilogram of gypsum, you have 200 grams of water that's just in the rock, basically. Huh. That's quite a lot. Uh, concrete, you could, you could theoretically do it with concrete, which is what we do in concrete ovens or cement ovens, right? We, we get the, the water out of there by heating it up, but that you need much higher temperatures. And there's only about 3% water in, in concrete typically. So not as efficient, obviously. Not to mention it's harder than gypsum. So gypsum hmm. is a really unique combination of having a soft rock yeah. with a high percentage of water uh, that's fairly easy to, to work with. And so which is, that's why we chose gypsum here. Huh. And so that's what we're, what we're working on. I think that's, that's uh, some good engineering there because you don't need the drill bit which would wear and heat up and need replacing. You do need to bring the oven and uh, energy source and some water uh, to start things off. And I, I'm mentally, you know, trying to think like how much water do you actually need to bring? I, I ran a metal fab shop for a couple of years back in my hometown and uh, we had a plasma cutting table, but um, we would often send stuff out like custom letters or something like that to be, uh, water jet cut and so you would use a very fine stream of water and that will go right through thin metal for example and so when you say that i'm like yeah it could it can even as a pressure washer type spray which is quite a, a larger diameter let's say uh hitting that gypsum it is going to splatter you need some kind of way of capturing that obviously and then take it off to the oven and then i guess a condenser or something to pull in the the vapor as it comes off so pretty pretty neat process i like it um and 
So as long as your oven and your, and, and I guess that comes down to the volume of processing that you want to do at any moment, right? right. Is, is the capacity of your oven. Um, so it doesn't need to be huge. You just need to be able to continuously process enough and then feed that water jet so that it can continue making more um, gypsum splatter with enough water in it. Yeah, to then it is consuming, obviously, uh, with, the, with the energy and the water jet itself. Right. Really, really interesting to, to think through that. Thank you. Because um, I, I've watched a few class um, presentations. I've interviewed uh, Dr. Daniel Britt that will probably have almost certainly have come out by the time this episode does. Um, um, one or two other folks who were looking at uh, lunar uh, ISRU construction methods and that. And I, and I found out like, we think concrete is so great here on planet earth right you know and it's it, it, so why not just use that in space right well uh it turns out you need water as a major component and water is kind of scarce in some of these places that we're going or we need to go get it from somewhere uh and second it has a not so great a compressive strength and i don't know about you but if uh, meteorites are going to be slamming into <laughs> the structure that i'm in or the the surface over what uh, i'm under i don't want it to have a poor compressive strength so i heard you mention um 3d printing around 10 minutes ago so uh how does that work because i don't imagine that has a lot of uh, compressive strength where where is 3d printing good for mars or lunar um utilization well, one of, one of the challenges when you make a structure mm -hmm. is to use the material for its uh, best properties, mm -hmm. if you will. Now, metals are nice because they have sort of the same compressive and tensile strength. Mm -hmm. um, but concrete has only compressive strength, but really no tension strength almost, mm -hmm. right? okay. so just, which is why we have rebar in concrete, mm -hmm. because the steel pores take care of the tensile strength, okay. whereas the concrete itself is, is the compressive part. Okay, so uh, for, it's the opposite of what I said, which yeah. is why you can drop bombs on submarine pens and they're still okay. All right. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, well, they're, they're, that's challenging. If you have a right bomb, that still, does, that still would yeah. work. But anyway, so, so compressive strength is, is great for structures, but again, that's earth thinking. Mm -hmm. Because when you are in space, I actually don't need a lot of compressive strength because uh -huh. gravity is lower. Um, but what I actually really need is tensile strength hmm. because a structure that I live in needs to, have, you know, if I want, don't want to wear a suit, that means it has to be sort of one atmosphere pressure. And then, you, you know, you can go with different mixture ratios. So if I have pure oxygen, I can have a lower pressure. Uh, but let's say we have one atmosphere pressure. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you look at a structure that has to contain one atmosphere mm -hmm. pressure, it's pushing you get out. a lot yeah. of tensile strength. Yeah. And the way we built here on Earth is totally not suitable for containing one atmosphere on the inside. It would literally blow up every building that exists here <laughs> because it's not capable of withstanding one atmosphere internal pressure. Huh. And so you have to think really differently about how you build when you talk about pressure vessels. It's really that's what we're talking about. And so one of the key components there is you have to generate that tensile strength in the structure to maintain that pressure inside. Hmm. And so how, what material could we create that has a high tensile strength? And that's, that's actually very tricky because uh, on Earth, we would use essentially steel or aluminum or a metal of some sort. Uh, and if you think about the space station, that's mostly made out of metal. Uh, as well, like aluminum, aluminum tin cans, as we call it typically. Uh, but how how would you uh, create that using materials that are are there? And mm -hmm. so you can scoop up the dust, and you could pile it up, and that would be a pretty decent meteorite shield. But it can't handle any tension because it's mm -hmm. just sand. Right. Now you could make some sort of concrete. You can actually make ceramics as well by sintering the material or melting the material. Uh, and actually that has pretty decent properties. Uh, it's, it's really like ceramic tiles. And we've explored that for the landing pads and things like that. Um, but it's, it's hard to make a structure out of that, right? So making tiles is one thing, but creating a structure that can handle a pressure on the inside is, is not trivial. Uh, and so that's where, where 3D printing additive manufacturing sort of can, can come in, uh, where you could conceive that say, let's, let's make a titanium powder on the moon or something like that. And then we can hmm. uh, additive manufacture, 3D uh, print uh, a titanium structure, for instance. Hmm. And we, we, can do that. we can do that here on Earth. Um, right? So rocket nozzles are sometimes 3D printed and, and things like that. 
but it, but it's challenging to do to get the right quality that your that your mm-hmm. construction can handle the pressures and temperatures that we're talking about and so for at first until we learn how to do this i certainly would not want to live in a structure that we we 3d printed <laughs> uh first of all you need to have a controlled environment right when we do 3d printing here on earth we have sort of in, a, in an in an oven we 3d print these structures so we keep good uh make good bonds between the different layers and i think that's a big challenge on to do that on the moon Hmm. Uh, so the way i see the the additive manufacturing it's mostly for uh non-critical structures and what i mean by that's not pressurized right so think about landing pads or berms uh, walls roads um you could even sort of see maybe a a shed or something like that that i park my robot under for protection Hmm. but it's not pressurized right So that's kind of how I see the initial applications of of 3D printing. Okay. You've got me thinking of, um, of, of, pressurized buildings with revolving doors like there was a stadium in my hometown bc place um and the roof collapsed <laughs> about 10 years Oops. ago i think it was it was it was pressurized on the inside they lost that uh and they had to do something about it you know it was like a a, a, a fabric roof and so that that pressure is maintained inside with the revolving doors and that um also plywood i wonder i wonder how uh, the plywood model would be used here because you mentioned layers, right? And, and so plywood gets its strength from having these crossed uh, layers of, of the fibers. So hmm, this is something that I'll be watching for from now on. Uh, <laughs> to see where, where, if anywhere, you guys go with that. Uh, so what, let's finish up with this then. Um, and, and we've kind of touched on a part of it here with the, the question we just answered. Uh, what do you believe are the most important next steps for figuring out uh, ISRU for construction of mining on the moon and Mars? Obviously some sort of uh, 3D printing or something that can handle pressurization so that we don't have to stay in suits all the time. What else? Well, I mean, you talk about the next steps, but I mean, to me, the, really the first step is to, to go out there and do it. Um, and so, the, the challenge is that we haven't been back to the surface in a long time. And so, mm. uh, first of all, we have to go back and make sure we can do all those things, the basic steps to even just get there. And then the second step is, okay, let's just try out some things because there's only so much we, we can really simulate here on earth. Right. And being able to build something and then, and then just test it there. Uh, what I mean is build a robot and then test the robot yeah. there, make sure it performs the way you think it does create something, mm-hmm. a road, a landing pad, something, and then see how it holds up and, and, and the quality over time, uh, see how the robot functions. So it's, all those are the basic first steps is to learn how to do that and then scale it up to some bigger things, right? Maybe we actually create now a mining uh, base on the moon. Uh, maybe we actually create some nice roads and we drive over it for a couple of years to see how that holds up. And, and by doing those kinds of things, we'll, we'll learn how to do that properly. And that, so the way I kind of envision this developing is kind of an uh, Antarctic-style research base mm-hmm. that's focused on ISRU, using how, learning how to use the local materials to build things, right? So we start out with, with the oxygen and, and the, the, the ice, the hydrogen and the oxygen, and then we, we start to learn how to do the metals, Mm-hmm. And you extract the oxygen from the lunar regolith, you're essentially left with a waste product that has a lot of metal in it. And so, you know, maybe we can start using those metals for something like that. Uh, the challenge that I see coming down the, the line with that is how do you create a, a uh, let's call it a, ha- a half product, something in, in between that we could use for, let's say, additive manufacturing. Uh, and so I can't just scoop up some lunar dust and when I extract the oxygen have pure titanium left it's a mixture of all sorts of things and so how from that do I create a quality product that that can handle tension to the level that we need and so how does that product vary right so on earth we have very complicated process control steps in place to make sure that like if I put my titanium powder in my printer, it's 99.99% titanium oxide. It's the powder stuff. Mm-hmm. And so there's a complicated industry behind that that creates those kinds of things. And right. it's going to be a while before we get to, to that level of 
uh, quality control on the lunar surface. And to me, that, 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 that lunar base that, that focuses on using the local materials is going to learn and, and, and really figure out how we can use that local material. How can we separate it? How can we create that high quality material that allows us to do that more advanced manufacturing that we'd like to do? Mm -hmm. so at the beginning, we want to just use whatever is there right. without doing much processing and without a lot of energy. So it, it's very useful as it is. Um, but that next step, we need more energy. We need the, the research going on in, on site locally uh, and to really try to understand that, that, how that works. Yeah, this is, this is a tough thing because it's, it's, it is like going into an Arctic or an Antarctic desert, like you say. There's no wood. There's no fuel source in that sense. You know, we've got to pull it from somewhere else. Uh, metal no Home rare. Depot or McMaster yeah. car. And, and these, yeah, we can't just ship it to the Great Lakes and have something done with it in a foundry or something right in that region. So it, it is a lot tougher. Plus, there has got to be a reason, and this is, I think, the biggest challenge for us to have a long-term human presence there. Um, for these years that you require for building a road and seeing what happens or a landing pad and seeing what happens and getting this iterative process going. So I think that's the next biggest challenge. Uh, Paul, where can people go to find out more about you and the lab and what you're doing? Well, so like I said, I'm a professor at Michigan Tech. And so uh, you can contact me at Michigan Tech. Uh, you can search for my name, but also you can email me there, uh, pjvansus at mtu.edu. And I assume you can uh, share that information with uh, uh, interested audience members. And so um, email is probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Uh, if you have any questions or, or you know, you'd like to discuss how, uh, testing under lunar conditions or things like that, I'm happy to collaborate in all of those kinds of things. Uh, and so, yeah, email is, is the best way to uh, get a hold of me. We're working on a website. It's not up yet, um, mostly because we don't have any pictures of, let's say, <laughs> the vacuum chamber yet because right. it's not delivered yet. Um, I do have drawings of all of that stuff and descriptions of the capabilities, but we haven't put it online yet because it's not operational uh, as of yet but uh, depending on how long this virus situation uh, lasts I hope to be up and running by uh, uh, early summer in this case and so I'd love to hear from you love to talk to what people's plans are and, and see how we can help you out with those things right on Dr. Paul Van Suzante thanks for being here today thank you Jason glad to be here this is Jason Canningham from Cold Star Tech. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do want to get email notifications of upcoming episodes or episodes that have just been released, and maybe a little news sprinkled in here and there, you can sign up for email notifications at coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring. That's another little show that I do. It's uh, once, twice, three times a week, something like that. Anytime there's news or uh, an update on who I'm meeting and, and what I'm uh, studying in the space field. So you can go check that out. On the YouTube channel, I can do something that I cannot do on uh, Anchor for the audio only uh, side of things. The YouTube channel allows me to have playlists. And so you might want to go to the channel, the Cold Star Tech channel, and check out those playlists because you will find, you can go down a rabbit hole basically into several areas like space law and policy, uh, small sats. And I think that's a lot easier than trying to scroll through 130 episodes or something like that, <laughs> looking for the thing that you want. So I recommend going and checking that out. And remember, if you're ready to take your space business to the next level or you're a VC looking for a deep and very valuable insight into a space company you're looking at investing in or investing further in, come and talk to us. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.